WRUU comes from our listeners and from the Penobscot Theatre Company, a nonprofit organization presenting their production of Disney's Beauty and the Beast from December 7th through 30th at the Bangor Opera House, 942-3333 or penobscottheatre.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. For today's show, we are playing a recording of the keynote address from MOFCA's 2017 Farmer to Farmer Conference, given on November 6th in Northport, Maine. The address is given by Emily Oakley, who owns and operates Three Springs Farm, a diversified, certified organic vegetable and fruit farm in eastern Oklahoma. Emily currently serves as a farmer representative on the USDA's National Organic Standards Board, the NOSB. And to give our listeners some background on the context of her address, there is currently a debate over whether or not hydroponic production practices should be allowed within the USDA's National Organic Program rule. About a week before this keynote address, the NOSB voted to not prohibit hydroponic production from the National Organic Program in an 8-7 to vote. This vote essentially maintains the status quo and the USDA has left the organic certification of hydroponic producers up to the discretion of accredited certifying agencies at the state level. MOFCA MOFCA Certification Services does not certify any hydroponic producers as organic here in Maine. So with that background, here is Emily Oakley giving the keynote address at MOFCA's 2017 Farmer to Farmer Conference. She is introduced by Jim Gerritsen of Wood Prairie Family Farm, a longtime certified organic family farm in Bridgewater, Maine. And since today's show is a recording, we will not be taking calls on today's show. Thank you. Good morning. I've been asked to introduce our keynote speaker this morning, and I want to do that in the way of a little story. Um, I first met Emily Oakley, who's a small family-scale certified organic farmer in Oklahoma two years ago. And uh, the occasion was the second agrarian elders gathering that Elliot Coleman organized, and we were meeting at the uh, Esalon Institute in Big Sur, California. And I had read the material before I got there, and I saw Emily's name. And I pieced together, I had seen that name before, and she was one of those uh, who was joining the National Organic Standards Board. And, uh, uh, well, I was kind of impressed and stunned at the same time, wondering if she really knew what she was getting into. So in January two years ago, uh, we had our meeting of 25 uh, farmers. Half of us were elders and half were young people, and Emily was of that batch of young people. And the design is that the elders eventually were going to fade off, but the youngers, which is kind of a clunky name of of what we call the younger group, they're the ones that were basically handing off um, what knowledge we've gained over 30, 40, 50 years of organic farming. Uh, The point is that organic is 
is a permanent institution that's been around 100 years, and we are entrusting those of us who are leaders in the movement need to be able to hand off what we've learned uh, to the next generation so that this continues and, uh, for, uh, forever. Of all the youngers that came there, there was no one that impressed me more than Emily. Uh, her uh, commitment to organic traditional values is, is unsurpassed. Her work ethic and her willingness to devote uh, herself to um, uh, fighting for what's right and organic is just uh, tremendous. And her work on the NOSB uh, is phenomenal. And with her there, you can be sure that your um, interest is being represented to a very high degree in a very difficult situation. And I think Emily is going to go into that. But, uh, when we had the opportunity to bring her to Maine, I thought she really has a message that, it, that we need to hear. And uh, it's really affirming to know that we have someone of her caliber on a national level fighting for the values that we have in Maine. So without any further ado, uh, Emily Oakley of Oklahoma. Um, we're a two-person operation. We do have someone who has started to come and help us 
Uh, since we had a kid four years ago on our Thursday and Friday harvest days. She's really amazing because she volunteers for free. She's her retired school teacher. That's an anomaly, but um, we're really lucky to have her. This is our full-time job. We are in trust fund babies, and uh, this is our only source of income. We sell at one Saturday farmer's market, and we have 120 members CSA where people come to the stand to get what they want, and we subtract it from a balance each week. Um, but we do that for a 22-week season, and we very intentionally created just that five-month marketing season, which I'll get into in a little bit later. And we just finished our 14th season, and we're certified organic by our State Department of Agriculture. Why did I put a map of America? <laughs> How many people have been to Oklahoma? Raise your hand. Oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Usually when I'm in the Northeast, people are like, uh, where is Oklahoma? Or I think I flew over there. Maybe I drove through there once. Um, but that's, that little dot is where we are. We're in Northeastern Oklahoma. We're like 60 miles from the home of Walmart um, in Tyson Chicken, and you can definitely feel that. This is kind of the, the best Google Earth uh, resolution we can get of our farm. This is our 20 acres, and it just kind of gives you a sense of how it's laid out. We have about, you know, three in production, four in production. The rest of it is basically, in some degree, wildlife habitat, um, and it's spread out through intentional wildlife plantings, like a wildflower plot, native edible fruits, etc. Um, so that just kind of gives you an overview of what we what we look like. And then I put this picture in because my partner Mike is from Long Island. And he was like, you gotta put this picture into the creek in front of our house because nobody will believe that it's not just like the dust bowl area of Oklahoma. <laughs> um, so this is the creek that we go swim in when we're really hot. It's 100 degrees out in the summertime. You guys do not know hot. Someone was telling me like people complain when it's 80 here. Mm. That's like good times for us. So anyway, yeah, we do we do have like this Ozark ecosystem that we're working in. And this creek really does affect a lot of our management decisions because it's such a pristine, clear creek that we certainly don't want to be doing things to you know harm it anyway. So I'm sure these goals are really similar to a lot of yours, but I mean, our main goal is to be as small as we possibly can while still making a simple living. And our goal isn't to make a ton of money, which I'll show you what we do make in a little bit. And you can decide for yourselves if that's viable or not. Um, but that is kind of what we've done over time, is to kind of get as small as we can. And we get more efficient the smaller we get, ironically. Uh, having low external inputs is a big goal. Um, something that when we talk about hydroponics later, um, might be a little bit at, at odds with that. And then one of the most key aspects for us is having a restful off-season. Um, you're never totally off on the farm, but you could definitely slow down, take time away. Our farm is totally dormant right now and in cover crops, which is why we're here. Um, and I think that was really helpful for us. We're regenerating us as well. And we want to farm for the long term. We've seen farmers come and go and get burned out. We don't want to be that person. So uh, we were 26 when we started our farm, which means we're 40 now. And so we're not really young farmers, but we're not old season farmers either. We're like that in-between stage of farmers right now. Um, we studied agriculture in college, and uh, we are both like city kids, first-generation farmers, did not have any family land. My parents like drive by our farm in the summer with the air conditioning on, and they'll like crack the window. How's it going out there? Like they don't even want to get outside in the summer in Oklahoma. So 
we do not have farming backgrounds. Um, but like many people came to this as a first career. Um, oh, there you go. Better light, maybe. Um, yeah, so I think like many of you, we entered down farms. We thought we'd go to Oklahoma, buy land, and it would be super simple, but it's actually not that easy to buy land even in a place like Oklahoma. We lease land on the urban fringe. And what's funny is that um, this field is now surrounded by developments just 14 years later. So, you know, even in a place like Oklahoma, we're still seeing that tremendous pressure of expansion for land. Um, we were able to borrow equipment. We were able to borrow a barn. And it really helped us for those first three years get established. So we bought our own farm after three years. Uh, we looked at a lot of land. We used the NRCS soil maps to help us identify like what was potentially viable. We eventually bought something for 105000 It's 20 acres. It was a house with a... And when I say fixer-upper, like, I mean fixer-upper because we probably poured about that amount into it over the last 10 years. Had an old barn, um, but we were able to buy it outright with about maybe like 35000 from some family help. And the rest was from farm saved income from those first three years. So that means we haven't been in debt, which has been really nice for us psychologically. So I'm going to just show you a couple of slides of our fields so you can see what it looks like, just kind of the context of what we're doing. And if anybody has any questions so far, raise your hand. All right. Um, there's nothing really dramatic about what we're doing. We're definitely using tractors to help us achieve the no hired labor aspect of our farm. Um, so what we're doing probably looks a lot like what you're doing. This is our old barn that's in there as well. Um, and we grow about two dozen different crops. So part of why we are this two-person farm um, is, and the way that's possible is that we're basically selling instead of not selling, which is like this awesome new movement that's happening in organics smaller scale no-cell operations, um, but it required a lot of labor. So for us, we actually calculated we're only spending 150 a year in tractor diesel. So we're, we're using the tractor, but hopefully not too much. Ideally, we're rototilling one or at maximum two times a year on a given bed. We don't double crop any beds, and uh, basically half of our three acres in annuals are in cover crop for nine months of the year and the other half is in cover crop for seven months. They're really a big cornerstone of what we do. They allow us to, we've been moving away from chicken manure because of concerns just philosophically and practically with that material, even though we're in chicken country and it's really cheap and really accessible. Uh, for the last two years, we haven't applied it, and prior to that, we were applying it kind of like every other year. So we're hoping to get to a place where we can really rely exclusively on cover crops. Uh, there's not a whole lot of research out there about the viability of that over the long term, but that's our goal. So just so that I don't pretend like our farm is awesome and doesn't have its problems, this is to show you that, yeah, like everyone, we have pest issues, we have disease issues. And remember that creek I showed you? This is it uh, this spring in a crazy flood, and uh, it got like 500 feet wide now. And it, it goes up really quickly, but it goes down really quickly. Um, but this happened actually the night before a farmer's market, so we had to get out early um, and get to our, and go spend the night someplace with our produce. Uh, so, you know, 
everywhere has these like advantages and disadvantages, but the tomatoes are like, I don't know if you can see that there's almost no foliage. It's been eaten down by this like biblical pest that we got that you guys do not have um, called a blister beetle. And it happened during a very hot, dry year of 2011 and 12. And they send out this aggregating pheromone that attracts these blister beetles from like miles away. And everything was brown that year except for our green little farms. They would just come in every night, and it was crazy. Um, and it definitely made us question what we were doing. But I think you know all farms go through these struggles, and hopefully we come out on the end still happy and loving what we're doing. Um, we did have a kid four years ago when we were 35. She's almost five now. Um, and she works with us. Um, we will probably be homeschooling her because of these schools in our area. And um, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. Sometimes I feel bad for her because I think she'd probably like to be in childcare, having her own life. And other times, you know, I think she really enjoys the magic of being out on a farm. So, again, like, no situation is perfect, and we're all just trying to figure it out as we go. This is our farmer's market in CSA. Um, we take three stands in the summertime when we have a lot of produce, and it helps us get a lot sold. We have three people that we hire that help us during those busy weeks as well. So why are we a two-person farm? How many people here um, have employees? How many people do not have employees? So yeah, I mean, the Nordells like, really inspired us, as they've inspired many people. Um, and part of it is just that we don't have a lot of labor available to us in our area. Um, it's just, you know, a challenging situation. If someone is available, it's a little tricky to bring them on the farm. I know that's vague. But uh, also lifestyle, we don't want to be forced to get out there in the field at 7 or 8 every day because we have employees. Like, if it's a rainy day, we just want to, like, hang out inside and do office work and not feel... You know that pressure. Also, in order to have employees, we have to scale up, which was something that we didn't really want to do. And just we're really anal. That's like not already obvious. Just in my time talking to you, and we're not really good at managing people. So that's kind of what took us to this place. So this is our profit and loss overview from last year. And the reason I put it up here because some of you might look at this and think that is like a horrible farm. I can't believe Mafia invited them to come talk to us. Um, but I put it up here because it's always something I want to ask every farmer that I go to a conference or when I visit their farm, like, what are you actually making? Because, you know, that kind of is where the rubber hits the road. So basically, in essence, the last couple of years, we've been grossing more, ironically, um, and netting more. So we netted around 80000 this year. If you divide that between two people, that's $40,000. And that's over a five-month marketing period, but of course, you know, it's probably a good eight-month work year. Uh, any questions so far? I got a thumbs up, but not a question. Okay, got that already. Um, so this is also, I just love graphs, but this is basically um, our labor, which we keep track of in a field note on the computer at the end of every day, compared to our income over the years, and basically, like, you know, it's, there's two trend lines in here. That's what those straight lines are. And basically, the trend is that as our income has increased, our labor hours have decreased. Um, that's not always going to, you know, be true. There will be years when weather doesn't cooperate, and 
we're working more than we anticipate, or when we don't make as much because you know crop that we rely on isn't doing well. But that's sort of where we are. So why did we do a 22-week season? Like you guys, you know, we can very easily grow through the winter. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure for us to do so. And I think sometimes we worry, oh gosh, if we're not going in the winter, are we going to lose customers? Will they like not come back to us in the spring? I think there's a little bit of that, but I also think that you know, once you're established enough, you have this core customer base. But we always tell them when we end on Labor Day, and they're like, what? You know, there's so much on your table still. Why are you ending? We just tell them it's to rest our soils and our souls, which is really key for us. Um, like I said, we don't want to burn out, and we need that meaningful downtime. And we interned on farms in California that were going year-round, and it can work great, but it can also take a personal toll for some people. So we just knew for ourselves that we probably didn't have it in us to do that. We also work really hard in the summer in exchange for knowing that we're going to get this time off later. So we can make more in the seven weeks from July to mid-August than we can make in the other 15 weeks we market combined. Um, in order to farm year-round, we would lose some of that like summer concentration of income because we would be diverting our resources to starting up new seedlings, transplants, all that stuff. This is just a quick kind of our year in review and kind of what we do. Uh, basically, like October to January, we consider our off months. There's always a little bit of work to do in those months, but um, it's not that bad. It's like planting garlic for a day or you know, making sure we get our seed order in on time. February and March aren't that busy, but you know, April through September or April through August are pretty crazy. So our financial decisions are maybe a little different than some farms. We try to avoid debt because we we just get too stressed, I guess, about thinking about the farm having to service a debt. So we kind of made the decision to be in a place like Oklahoma, uh, where land is cheap that allowed us to do some of this. We don't overinvest in the farm, although my partner Mike and I are always at odds about like what that actually means, because you know some people think that investment is totally necessary, and then there'll be me who says, "But wait, you know, they're really going to generate the income for us that we want to do." Um, so we try to save about like you know in the range of thirty to forty. Um, $1,000 a year, which sounds kind of crazy, but we're trying to think of like our retirement. And as a two-person farm, um, I know that like physically speaking, I can tell when that I'm getting older. I know like for those who've been farming for over 40, it doesn't sound old, but it sure isn't 26 either. And um, we ended up like using some of that savings to buy our rental house and the town near us where we market. Um, just trying to diversify our income and think in the bigger picture. And we actually learned the rental house idea from the Agrarian Elders Conference because the farmers there who had thought about retirement, the few that, that had been making plans for that, really were, were doing this. And it seemed like a good fit philosophically um, just because it's hard to find a good way to retire that you're not kind of sucking from someone else's resources. You are listening to Common Ground Radio, and today we are playing a recording of the keynote address given by Emily Oakley at MOFCA's 2017 Farmer to Farmer Conference. And since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. So, yeah, we end on Labor Day, we don't work on Sundays, 
We try really to work from like 8 to 5. Um, and then we try to make time for our family, for ourselves, and for volunteer time, which leads me into the National Organic Standards Board. Um, any questions so far, though, about farming stuff or anything like that? What is your growing zone? What's our growing zone? Seven. Um, but with climate change, you know, I think it's, I was telling someone we had a freak year where we got down to 27 below one day in February, which like the coldest record to that point was like three or five below. Um, and we've gotten up to like, we went to the market one day in 2012 in Tulsa and at five o'clock in the morning, it was 90 degrees. And the pavement was baking. We couldn't even put produce down on the ground because it was just starting to cook through the pavement in the dark of night. So with climate change, I think it's, it's hard to really see where we are. And it's hard to make plans for perennial crops because of that. Did I see another hand? Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So now sure we're going to expose our Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the appetite for organic in Oklahoma is pretty strong. I grew up there, and uh, I felt like when we were interning in California, they said, don't go back, you know, nobody's going to buy your stuff in Oklahoma. And the Whole Foods at the time of Wild Oats had opened up and was extremely popular. And I, I kind of felt like there was this misrepresentation of the customer base there, this expectation that they wouldn't know what it was or wouldn't want it. But it's, I mean, it's been very profitable for us. Like our average market take on Saturday over that 22-week season is 5,000 a market. So, you know, that includes our CSA. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there's still a tremendous demand that's not being met. So if any of you are still looking for land and you don't love Maine and have made Oklahoma sound amazing, come. <laughs> or if you have friends that are looking for land and they don't know where to go, come to Oklahoma. It's lonely out there. <laughs> um, yeah? Um, in certification, we see a lot of folks that establish their markets as a certified organic entity and then because of the cost I mean, <laughs> no, in that um, I really believe strongly in the movement. I wrote this guide for the National Young Farmers Coalition, trying to encourage more young farmers to get certified. I feel like, you know, if, if especially in, like, the Northeast and, and even in my area, too, like, those of us who are selling directly to our consumers, we don't necessarily need certification um, because we have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with people, but... I feel like if those of us who are growing organically um, that aren't certified were and were vocal within organic standards, it would have a huge impact. Um, so I think it's a big part about being counted. I mean, I will say like the latest trends that have been going on within the USDA's interpretation of enforcing the rules has definitely given me pause. And if there's ever been a time that's made me think, why am I doing this? It's now, but. You know, those are sort of in my low moments, and then hopefully I wake up and feel better the next day. And I, mean, I still believe that, you know, it was small farmers that created this label that allowed me to come into this field. 
And it's still small farmers that the consumer thinks about when they consider organics. And I'm not ready to give that label up or all that's been bought for to get to this place. I think, um, you know, your $80,000 a year net is pretty appealing, probably to a lot of people in this room. That looks really good. As someone who trains young farmers, we talk a lot about how to start up and what kind of resources everybody comes to the table with. A really different set of resources, family resources or land or and so could you speak to what kind of resources you had available yeah. to get to this point? That's a great point. Um, so we interned at Full Valley Farm in California and then I went to grad school at UC Davis and this sounds crazy, but you know, we really stayed with someone in exchange for rent. We did for gardening work like one weekend out of the month. And we saved about twenty twenty five thousand over a three year period from interning and grad school, ironically enough. Um, so we came with that, and then the money that we had to help us buy the farm, the like thirty five forty thousand, I had um, a grandmother that passed away and left me twenty five thousand dollars, and then my parents uh, gave us about ten to fifteen um, as like a, a gift for the down payment. So those. Um, were the resources that we kind of brought into it, but really it's like this mentality of like simple living, I think, too, that's made it possible. Um, and what they say in Oklahoma, I don't know if they say it here, is like beg, borrow, and steal. <laughs> so definitely, you know, asking to borrow things that we don't need all the time um, in exchange for produce and goodwill has also helped us keep costs low. Any other questions before I move into the fun stuff? Yeah. I just have uh, a question about, can you give me a general idea of what land prices look like? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've changed quite a bit. When uh, If you want to get like this amazing bottomland that's within 20 minutes of Tulsa, it's under incredible development pressure, and it's like, you know, way over 20,000 an acre at this point, just because of its proximity to town. Um, our land, you know, I'd say we spent somewhere in the like 1,500 an acre range because it was cleared, <laughs> but now it's probably devalued because we let, you know, we planted so many native trees and we let the wildlife habitat grow up. So, um, but like I think it's somewhere in the like two to four thousand range, depending upon you know the quality of your soil and your proximity to town. Which I hear is not totally unsimilar to rural areas out here, sorry. Okay. Cheaper here. Shoot, I should have come here first. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of reading in this, but since you guys had already said you've heard of the NOSB, my next question is how many people feel like they know what the NOSB actually does? All right, see, me too. Before I joined, I was like, oh, there's like this group of people, and they're looking at the standards, and they're making sure they're intact. And that is what happens, but um, like one of the primary activities is that the NOSB makes recommendations on the list of allowed and prohibited substances, but basically like allowed synthetics. So although the USDA doesn't have to listen to every recommendation that the NOSB makes, it cannot add a material to the national list unless the NOSB approves it. And then every five years, the NOSB is reviewing the materials that are already on the list. 
Um, well, every year, but every product goes through, or every material goes through a five-year review to make sure that it still meets the standards. Like, for example, in Jacksonville, which is where we had our last meeting, we just voted to remove vitamin B1 um, from cross production because there was a technical report uh, that showed that it wasn't actually effective. So things do come off the list, but uh, not in large numbers. And then the NOSB also makes recommendations on practice issues like hydroponics, um, or less controversially, like use of organic seed. So um, there are like other areas that the NOSB works on um, besides just materials. So I guess my question is, when you're on your farm, are you out there thinking about the standards ever? Because, okay, Jim, the gym is like the rare exception of a highly active person. And, you know, I don't want to generalize what you guys are thinking, but when I was on my farm, like I said, it really never entered my mind. And I always thought, like, oh, the controversies in handling stuff, and like the organic Twinkie, or in livestock, um, which is true. But now the, the controversy has come to cross with, with hydroponics. So it's definitely, it, like, our ability to just kind of shut that stuff out is diminishing. Um, so before I joined the NOSB, I think I'd only submitted one public comment ever. Has anybody here ever submitted a public comment? Okay, that's awesome. Are there people who don't know how to submit a public comment? And don't be afraid to raise your hand if you don't know. All right, I'm going to show you a couple of slides, which are screenshots from the USDA's website, just to kind of walk you through that process, which I hope is not going to be too boring, but maybe to give you a little background on that. Um, yeah, and I guess I would say that in just the year and a half I've been there, that the pressure to adopt standards that are big, agribusiness farm friendly are, are immense, and don't underestimate that. And it's easy to think that we're all just sort of insulated in our small farm community and our direct-to-consumer community, but I think that spillover is coming. So, okay. Yay, exciting. Um, if you just Google, National Organic Standard Board, this is the website that comes up. And uh, the next page is what's at the bottom of that. And so if you kind of look at this, I don't know how easily or how easy it is to read this, but uh, you can see NOSB recommendations, subcommittee notes, and NOSB meetings. And I think USDA's website is awful, right? I mean, this is so not user-friendly. But this is what you would go to if you were just itching to read something, like the hydroponics proposal. So if you want to know what the NOSB is discussing, you would click that NOSB meetings, and this is what would come up. And then the most like recent meeting to come will be the one at the bottom, and it'll, you can obviously tell by the date that you're Googling. It's, you know, in this case, it would have been the fall 2017 meeting in Jacksonville. So let's say you click that. Um, it's going to pop up uh, with these resources, and below where it says resources, Um, it has the registered notice, which is not of interest to you, the attended meeting agenda, which might be of interest to you because it um, can show you what proposals are coming up in a quick and easy way. And then you can also hit subcommittee proposals. So let's say you know there's something controversial coming up because MOCA has alerted you to this. Um, you can go and find out. So this at the bottom of that same page shows you ways that you can comment. You can give written comments on uh, regulations.gov. 
and I'll show you how to do that. And then you can give oral comments on a webinar, which is a really powerful way to tap in. And it sucks because you only have three minutes. Like, I'm not going to pretend like that's an awesome amount of time to present your comments. But do you know who's taking up those three minutes right now? Anybody want to take a guess? Who are the Corporations. Walmart. General Mills. Yeah. Like, it's, it's people who have petitioned materials. It's lobbyists. It is very infrequently farmers. So when farmers speak, it's really important and they get listened to. Um, and you can come to a meeting, which did anybody go when it was in Vermont by any random chance? All right, okay. Like when my term is done on the NOSB, I will probably never go to another NOSB meeting. But if you should find that it's in your area, or you know, if you have an issue that's up in boards, you can just have you know a thousand dollars that you don't know how to spend. Um, it really is an effective presence. So. If you clicked on that one, it said subcommittees. It's going to show you all the different subcommittees that the NOSB members are part of. I'm on the CROPS, the Certification, Accreditation, and Compliance, which I clearly do not have that much knowledge on. But I got there because of an interest in an issue called eliminating the incentives to convert native ecosystems to organic agriculture, which somehow fell under this committee. And then I'm also on the Materials and GMO Committees. So um, everybody's on a couple, but let's say you're interested in hydroponics, you would click crops, and it's going to show you all the proposals, or by year. If you clicked on the 2017, it's going to show you what in that October meeting the NOSB is actually going to be voting on and looking at. And like, raise your hand if you're already thinking there's no way in hell I'm ever going to use this information that person is sharing with me. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you if you're thinking that, but I hope to convince you in a couple of minutes that you should. So let's just say you clicked on a hydroponics proposal. Well, this is like what would come up, a PDF of it. And it wasn't short, but it really is telling because it's like letting you know what the NOSB is actually going to be talking about and what motions are before the NOSB to vote on. So if you're just dying to make a written comment, which I highly recommend, because even though there were like 7,000 pages of written comments this last time, um, it is crazy that people on the board do truly read them. Um, I think people take it really seriously, and nobody wants to overlook that. So if you're thinking, oh, look, I see that there were 2,275 comments received. Why should I bother making one? No one's going to read it. That's definitely not true. And uh, the USDA staff is also reading it, um, so just putting it out there. Uh, when I copied this screenshot, the, the comment period had already closed. But if you go to regulations.gov, you know what meeting is coming up. And you type in their search engine, National Organic Standards Board, and the place where the meeting will be held, this open docket will come up and it'll tell you how to comment. You can also always email the NOP and they will tell you how to comment. Is anybody thinking they're going to comment next time? Maybe? All right. Um, so why is this important? Like, why should farmers comment? Basically, as I said, farmers don't often write in, much less come in person or be on a webinar. So when they do, everyone takes notice. I cannot stress that enough. Because they know that farmers are busy farming. They know that they're not likely to take the time or, in many cases, even know how to comment. 
So when they do, your voice is magnified. Like, I cannot over-exaggerate this. Like, thousand-fold, because people know and want to listen to you. Um, so the main farmers that are commenting right now are sort of the founding farmers of the organic movement. And as they get older and retire, or get whatever, you know, tired of the whole process, it's that much more important that younger farmers start getting involved in this process because right now that voice is, is going to be aging out, so it's important that the younger generation of farmers start to get active. Um, and I guess this sounds kind of trite to say, but it's true that if younger farmers don't start participating, the standards will continue to evolve away from the heart of the movement because there just won't be enough resistance. But when you do, that resistance is visible. So this is kind of what we've noticed as the organic marketplace has changed just in the 14 years that we've been doing this. Do people hear from their customers about Blue Apron or any of these other issues? We've had customers like trying to come up to us telling us how they could like partner with us to try to create like Blue Apron Three Springs Farm. Um, I also think that the widespread availability of organics in grocery stores has clearly changed dramatically in just the short time that we've been doing this. Uh, I know you guys don't have lots of Walmarts, but you know there is. I did go to the Whole Foods in Portland when I landed here, and there's some local produce, which is nice, but there is a vast preponderance of produce from the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So I think all of us are affected by that, and we'll get to that in a second. But how about millennials, right? Because I think a lot of the diehards for organic produce were that back to the land or hippie movement, and we're seeing our customer base getting older. Millennials are coming, but they're not necessarily cooking as much. People with families have the same challenges that like we have as well, which is time to cook, knowledge about how to cook this stuff. So you know, this marketplace is growing and expanding, almost 50 whatever crazy amount of money it is right now, uh, your industry, but it is also a customer base that's evolving. How many people are doing CSAs here? How many people are doing personalized CSAs or have been asked to do personalized CSAs? Awesome, okay, well, that's a good low number. But the trend nationally is not that. People are definitely getting pushed to personalize CSAs. It kind of, in some people's view, like water down the concept of what a CSA means. And you might feel insulated in Maine, and maybe you are. But um, just, I would say, be aware that those trends are happening. All right. Anybody ever seen one of these? You have? Yes. Oh. They've gotten allowing GMO corn some of the bigger companies. Well, GMO corn is not technically allowed. Uh, there might be the unfortunate reality that drift is occurring, um, but it is not, GMO corn is not allowed in the organic standards. Okay, well, yeah. But they are using handling ingredients um, that allow them to try to develop a flavor that tastes like you're not organic. Doritos. I mean, I really just, like, I don't know, do I need to say any more? Like, we have organic Doritos. Like, that time has come, and I couldn't believe it when I saw it in this grocery store a half hour from my town in kind of like quasi-rural, very rural Oklahoma, 
And if they think that somebody in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is going to buy organic Doritos, like what does that tell us about this changing marketplace? This is Common Ground Radio, and today we are playing a recording of the keynote address given by Emily Oakley at MOFCA's 2017 Farmer to Farmer Conference. And since this is a recording, we are not taking calls on today's show. So I'm going to redo a couple of things right now. Um, so when we first started, people used to ask us what organic meant, but now nobody does. They see our USDA seal, and they trust it. The upswing in all the food ink documentaries and others, the Buy Fresh by Local movements, and those were a while ago, have given rise to an increasing customer base who are thinking about where their food comes from. That increasing demand for organics has been met by more young people getting into farming, but it's also been met by conventional agribusiness expanding into the organic sector. On the surface, that seems like a good thing. More land being grown organically, and it is when looked at in a vacuum. But that's not how it plays out. Many of us have reassured ourselves that while agribusiness organics is not ideal, at least it's better than the land being grown conventionally. That's an argument I've told myself often and what I've heard from others. But there comes a point at which the system, as in the case of hydroponics, becomes so far removed from the heart of the movement as to become unrecognizable. It's taking a good thing and stretching it to its outermost limits of possible meaning. Those large corporations who have nine toes in conventional farming and a pinky toe in organics are actively advocating for standards that are conventional farming friendly, hydroponics, animal welfare, organic herbicides, just to name a few. Small farmers are feeling the pressure to adapt to customers who want choice and doing more markets per week to expand accessibility and convenience while not necessarily making more money. On top of all of this, there are more customers who see negative headlines or competing research claims and grow skeptical about organics. They use that as an excuse to not pay the little extra bit it might cost for organics. So given all of that, I think, you know, it sounds like doom and gloom, but I also think that we have a really diverse organic consumer base. Now, in Oklahoma, we might see more of this spectrum than you do here. But there is, like, on one end of the spectrum, the person who will buy organic milk for their kids because they don't want hormones in their kids' milk. And then on the other end, there's somebody who's buying all organic, comes to the farmer's market, has a CSA, is a totally committed, organic, local, when possible, first buyer. And then there's everybody in between. And, you know, I guess when we think about that, we're really dying or tapping into the diehard end of the spectrum. And those are the consumers who best understand why we do what we do and who share those same values of the broader environment and lifestyle reasons and aren't just concerned about the health benefits to themselves. How many people here think that organic consumers basically just care about no fertilizers, pesticides, or GMOs? How many people think organic consumers care about like the broader environment, that stuff, and the broader environmental reasons and the reason that like you do what you do? Well, it's funny because we get this all the time at the National Organic Standards Board meetings. People who claim to sort of know what the organic consumer is, but I think the organic consumer is extremely diverse, and I don't think any of us can really know who they are, and they represent a wide degree of choices. Um, but to that end, I think that even though agribusiness is capturing the low-hanging fruit consumer, they're banking on customers thinking of us 
the smaller family-scale farmers in our practices when they buy big organic food. We are really and truly still the face of organics, even in a Walmart. Even when they're buying like huge packages of larger-than-large grapes coming from wherever, the consumer is still thinking on the smaller scale. So what is the driving force that brings people to organics? Personal health or concern for the environment? Even if there are consumers who buy organic only for no pesticides or GMOs and are concerned about the environmental consequences of growing food, we need to encourage that thinking, or to counter that thinking, so we don't lower our standards. And we don't, we don't need to like try to pander to that kind of dumbing down of organic thinking. I think rather it's our job to try to help build out the biodiversity implications and get customers understanding about all that broader work that we're doing as organic farmers. All right, more numbers. Is it too much? Uh, 14,185 certified organic farms in the U.S. in 2016. Are you surprised to see that 73% of them grow under 180 acres? Well, we hear a lot of the National Organic Standards Board that I think there's this thinking that if like those smaller scale or family scale farmers, you know, just get fed up with all the chaos and leave the movement, that fine, let them go. You know, we've got big organic farms that can fill their place and can feed the wholesale markets. But if the small scale family farmers leave the movement, the whole label collapses because it's 73% of the label under 180 acres, and that includes pasture and rangeland in that statistic. So that's a huge motivating force, and I hope you feel empowered by those numbers. But squeaky wheel does get the grease, so the people who comment before the NOSB are the people that the NOSB hears. And they're the loudest, and they're disproportionately loud because they can hire lobbyists, and they do. And the small scale farmers, cannot and do not, nor do we even want to go into that realm. It's like the icky part that we, like that's not why we got into this. But people will deal with who is in front of them. And if small scale farmers aren't commenting and if they're not vocal, it's really easy for everyone to just say that silence means consent. And that the small scale farmers are basically just agreeing to everything that's going on. All right. Um, Anybody concerned about hydroponics in your area? Um, all right, this is a picture of some wholesome harvest tomatoes in my Tulsa Whole Foods in mid-August when we were also in our peak tomato production. Then we sell these slicing tomatoes at our market stand for $3 a pound because we have a lot of competition. They're labeled as greenhouse. They're not labeled as hydroponic. They're definitely covered in disease issues. I was pretty surprised by looking at it. Um, I guess my question to you guys is, do you think that this expansion of hydroponics is going to affect you? Would you raise your hand if you think it will not affect you? Okay, awesome, all right. Well, then I don't need to tell you the next thing I was gonna say. Um, because it may feel like I often sometimes think, oh, I know my customers, it's not that big of a deal, I can counter this. But these guys are now not calling this hydroponic, they're calling it container grown. They're rebranding and they're very quick to move with the times and the times of opposition. 
Um, so a little more reading. I would just say that the organic label has become a victim of its own success in that smaller-scale farmers have a philosophical bone to pick with hundreds of acres of monoculture lettuce and hydroponics being an even broader step away from the diverse systems originally envisioned by organic farming. Hydroponics is the equivalent of organic capos for vegetables, and this is why farmers are so concerned by its allowance. It is symbolic of trends towards agribusiness organics, which is totally counter to what created the movement in the first place. While many of us direct-to-consumer or smaller-scale growers know our customer base and have loyal followings, we're all subject to the effects of pricing. A flooding of the organic market by hydroponic operations will mean downward pressure on the very crops that small-scale operations depend on to remain profitable. It is no coincidence that hydroponic operations have cherry-picked the most profitable crops to sell, the crops that are the bread and butter of local farms, salad mixes and baby greens, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers. Is anyone growing hydroponic cabbage? No. <laughs> so I think the greatest challenge that we in the soil farmers face is building and fertility, soil fertility, and weed control. And those are the two practices that hydroponics aims to avoid. And those are the things that take the long view in farming. Um, the two limitations of weeding and fertility are those that hydroponics seeks to override by growing in an artificial environment. Weeds can be blocked out by plastic or cement, and plants can be fed liquid fertility on a continuous or near constant basis. Although it's not as egregious as giving plants a steroid of synthetic fertilizers like urea, it's based on the exact same concept, only using organic inputs instead of urea. And that's what we mean when we're talking about input substitution in these hydroponic systems. So the way forward, right? Where do we go from here? Although I think that hydroponics and animal welfare are emblematic of greater issues at play, and there is pressure to make the NOSBA more corporate friendly, someone actually testified before the Ag Senate Committee hearing that they needed more and deserved more uh, representation for industrial scale agriculture. It's family scale farmers that built these principles and created the market label and market base. It's not enough to assume that the standards reflect your values, and it's time for small farmers to get active and become local. I feel that certification has value because it protects farmers and consumers. It's just like back in the day when organic could mean anything to anyone. I don't think we want to go back there. Um, we are sharing the label with corporations who are profit-driven and not passion-motivated, but don't let that be a reason to abandon the label or opt out of certification. So here's my plug. Before joining the NOSB, I really didn't know much about it, and I didn't really feel like it affected me. But that's why I'm, again, appealing to younger farmers to start taking a stand. There is tremendous, enormous power in family-scale farmers getting certified, being counted, and advocating for standards we believe in. Write a comment, speak on a webinar, or if you really do have $1,000, you don't know how to spend, attend a meeting. So in conclusion, what we're all debating here is our vision of organic agriculture. Is it just input substitution on any scale and under any conditions? Or is it the broader view of the farm ecosystem, the surrounding environment, a philosophy that guides each management decision? 
Let's all get active, let's all let our voice be heard, and let's all tell the USDA and the NOSB that that is what organic means to us and we are part of the movement. Thank you. So today on Common Ground Radio, we've been listening to uh, the keynote address from MOFCA's 2017 Farmer to Farmer Conference, which was given on November 6th in Northport, Maine, uh, down at the Point Lookout uh, Center there. And the address was given by Emily Oakley, who we've been listening to. Uh, Emily and her husband own and operate Three Springs Farm, which is a diversified certified organic vegetable and fruit farm in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, Emily also currently serves as a farmer representative on the USDA's National Organic Standards Board. And that was the recording from uh, the keynote address from MOFCA's annual Farm to Farmer Conference. Um, I wanted to take just the last uh, minute or two here in the show to also remind listeners um, in our community of the Maine Agricultural Trade Show, which comes up uh, in January every year. And uh, next month, from, from January 9th to January 11th, is the trade show, which happens in Augusta at the Augusta Civic Center. And the trade show is three days of educational programs um, of all sorts, agricultural, forestry, uh, food safety issues. And they're really designed for a broad audience. Um, So the programs are designed for farmers and gardeners as well as consumers uh, and anyone really interested in any information at all. Um, And all are welcome. And each year at the Ag Trade Show, MOFCA has its its day of events. And um, this year, that date is Tuesday, January 9th, 2018, at the Augusta Civic Center. And for that day, there are numerous presentations uh, organized by MOFCA staff um, and volunteers to have great ed- educational programming for that day. And then also during that day uh, in the afternoon, January 9th from 1.30 to 3 p.m. is MOFCA's annual meeting. So that's the annual meeting that MOFCA holds each year for membership, but really anyone from the community or anyone interested uh, in learning more or hearing more is welcome to attend. Um, and as far as I know, there are no fees, fees at all for any of these educational opportunities at the Maine Agricultural Trade Show which again runs January 9th to January 11th in the Mofka days, uh, Jan- Tuesday, January 9th. And for a full uh, schedule of the presentations, you can go to, for the whole entire uh, trade show, you can go to the Get Real Maine site, which is www.getrealmaine.com, and you can find a full uh, slate there. And also for details on the Mofka presentations, you can go to mofka.org. Um, for the full schedule of the Mofka Day in detail. So I think we have come to the end of our show. Um, My name is CJ Walk. Thanks for listening to Common Ground Radio. I'd like to thank Amy Brown for engineering the show and Joel helping me with the recording of the keynote address. So Common Ground is brought to you the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. When it comes to contributing to a charitable cause, you've got a lot of choices. There are many worthy organizations that deserve your support. One of the best ways to support a cause you care about is to include it in your will. 
For information on making a bequest to WERU Community Radio, visit WERU.org.